Take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 5 as we continue our trip through this remarkable book of the Bible. I'm going to be preaching chapters 5 and most of chapter 6 today, but we're only going to read chapter 5. This is one of those chapters that uh, I suspect many of you will not remember is in the Bible. It's still in there, even though you don't remember, and it's still good. And the reason why it's good is not because you don't remember it. Uh, It's good because God wrote it. And as we often talk about, uh, the divine author wrote it, and because a divine author wrote it, it means he wrote it with you in mind today. You need to hear from Numbers 5. We'll see what that means in just a moment. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so. And put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed. And he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord. For the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him, And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, If a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife though she has not defiled herself. Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, and take some of the dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord, 
and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar." And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain and her womb shall swell and her thigh shall fall away and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the law in cases of jealousy. When a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. This is the reading of God's word. It's not what you were expecting this morning, was it? Let's pray. Again, Lord, as I often say in this book, we thank you for easy passages that uh, nourish us and feed us quickly and easily. And we thank you for very difficult passages like this one that require that holy hard work of thinking carefully. And we pray, O God, that your spirit would bring light to your word for Christ's sake. Amen. You ever have that moment where you're thinking along the line, you're interacting with somebody's idea or something, you have that kind of moment where you think, well, you, you know, you're, you're not wrong, but you're really not right. right. Like that moment, if you've ever seen this, where you read the study where they find that chocolate is suddenly good for you, and they tell you, you should eat chocolate. It's like, well, I mean, you're not wrong. I should eat chocolate if it's good for me, but you're not right. I should eat chocolate because it's delicious. Chocolate is good. I should eat chocolate because it is good. If it happens to benefit me, that's wonderful. It's a secondary benefit. 
When it comes time to talk about the law of God, there are a lot of times where uh, churches or sermons or books or things that we read spend time and energy focusing on how chocolate is good for you. That They focus on the thing that's secondary. They focus on the thing that's further down the list. You'll get books on Numbers chapter 5 that spend so much time and energy talking about how these laws in chapter 5 were designed for the good of Israel. And they're not wrong. The bigger emphasis, though, is not uh, for the good of Israel. It's to show who God is and what He's doing. It's like the books that say, well, you shouldn't, you know, the reason why God said they couldn't eat pork was uh, because it wasn't good for them if it's not properly cooked. And it's like, well, I mean, pork's not good for you if it's not properly cooked, but that's not the point of not eating pork. It was to show that they're holy, that they're different, that they're set apart, that God has called for himself a people, and they live differently than everybody else. Numbers chapter 5 is a lot, isn't it? That last part, woo, if you paid attention on that, that's rough, isn't it? And you could spend your energy thinking about how this is law, these are laws that are good for the people of God in a time in which they were. Or we can spend a little bit of energy in the brief time that we have contemplating what is God doing? Now, that's what we're hopefully going to look at. And just as a brief word of explanation, you remember we've been talking about this, there's three different types of laws. There's the moral law, that's the Ten Commandments, it's binding forever. There's the civil law, how Israel worked as a nation, it was, think of their kind of state governmental law code. And there was their ceremonial law, how their religious worship worked. Both the civil and the ceremonial have been fulfilled by Jesus and they've been removed. This chapter really falls in that category. It's not in my job description, thank the Lord, to make the waters of bitterness to test unfaithful wives. That's not what I do, thankfully. Lots of things I do and some of them are pretty weird. That's not in the list, at least not this week. So what we're going to look at is a passage that's in that civil and ceremonial category that's teaching us about who God is and what he's doing. In these first four verses, it's a a, a reenactment, a replay of what they've already heard in Leviticus, specifically chapters 13 through 15. And again, another book I know that you do your devotions in every week in which it's laying out for the people of God how their camp was supposed to operate. They were supposed to function as a people that tolerated no defilement of any kind. There was no defilement allowed. Now, interestingly, a lot of the things in here are things that aren't necessarily evil defilements, but they still marked you as defiled. Anyone who has a discharge, that includes uh, menstrual things, that includes sexual activity. Anything of those sorts of activities automatically marked you as being defiled in some fashion. Anyone who has a skin disease, well, okay, leprosy, that's fairly gross. Anyone who's had contact with the dead, and we have funeral homes here, so we very rarely actually have contact with our dead, But in a time in which that didn't happen, if somebody died, you had to handle it yourself. 
And so interestingly, already we have a category or group of categories here that would have been somewhat frequent occurrences. I mean, you think roughly half the population is going to fall into this category at least once a month, automatically defiled from being in the presence of God. Any married couple, hopefully more frequently than once a month, would be automatically marked as defiled and removed from the presence of God. Hopefully not the skin disease one. That's much, much worse. But the interesting thing is uh, the explanation that God gives for this. Because the idea of defilement and the presence of God cannot be geographically kind of in the same location. They can't coexist. These are things that are mutually exclusive, not mutually inclusive. Anyone who falls in this camp, anyone who's been defiled either in these three ways, verse 3, you have to put them, either man or female, not showing favorites here, have to put them out of the camp. They're removed from the people of God. They're put outside. They're an outcast, and they stay there until they can be restored properly. Why? Because God himself is holy, and he lives in the middle of his people. You remember we talked about this in a previous sermon, the way the camp traveled. You had three tribes on the north, three tribes on your east, three tribes on your west, three tribes on the south. With In the middle you had uh, the, the priesthood that lived around, and then the very center was the house of God. Geographically, a place where he resided. He resided between the wings of the cherubim, the, um, right there on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. He lived with Israel. And because God is holy, He cannot tolerate that which is not. So if you were defiled in any way, you're out, you're cut off, you're removed. Just beginning, just as a very obvious object lesson that the Lord and and defilement cannot coexist, holiness and defilement don't, don't kind of coexist. The problem becomes that at some point, everybody falls into one of these camps. Unless you have some sort of major medical problem, everybody's falling in one of these camps at some point in their life. And so the issue then becomes for your Jew not worrying about when defilement happens because it's going to. It's worrying about what happens after that. Right? If you have any flow of blood, you're automatically removed from the presence of God. What do you do after that? Someone dies unexpectedly. We had that in chapter 6. I'm not going to read it, but the person next to you dies and falls on you. You're automatically ruled out of being in the presence of God. What do you do? What do you do with that? And because, interestingly, even here, it's it's being brought to the forefront that God's holiness is so profound that sin cannot be in his presence, but we can't be the ones to resolve that. God has to be the one to resolve it. He's the one who gets to set the terms of his own presence. He's the one who is the only one powerful enough to resolve sin. In fact, actually, the way the confession talks about this, I think it's very helpful. 
that the entirety of the Old Testament is structured to teach us about Jesus, but to teach us through signs and pictures and shadows and laws. And verses 1 through 4 is a portrait of that. It's prepping us to understand what the ministry of Jesus would be, that when we sin, sin automatically cuts us off from the presence of God. Now, this is a a very important point to get, but one that is perhaps um, not politically correct. We like currently, we like to think about the idea of sin, we like to think about the idea of wrong as being tacky, as, as being uncouth, as being politically incorrect, as being, you know, awkward. But the reality is we think about it in terms of how it's oftentimes destructive for us, but we not naturally anymore think about the fact that the very essence of sin is to separate from God himself. God and sin do not dwell together, and if we've sinned, there's a problem. Numbers chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, is already setting the people of God up to be thinking about Jesus to say, is there a way to deal with my uncleanness? Is there a way to deal with the things that I have done in the past that have marked me as defiled? Is there a way to deal with the things that I've done in private that no one knows about, that even now I'm hiding away in my heart? Is there a way to deal with the things that are going to come to my mind when I sit down at the Lord's table in just a moment? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. That every time you go to the supper, those are the thoughts that pop in your head, the things that you've done, the list of the things that you can't get rid of. How? How do we resolve sin? How do we resolve the contamination of sin? How do we resolve being defiled? Well, Numbers chapter 5 points us to Leviticus, the sacrificial system. Leviticus and Numbers both point us to Jesus. It's interesting, Ephesians chapter 5, the way that the ministry of Jesus is described. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We love that part. That he might sanctify her, specifically, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It's interesting, the, the ministry of Jesus is a cleansing ministry to get rid of our defilement, to get rid of the contamination of sin. Verses 1 through 4 deal with defiling sins, those that are contaminating in, in nature. This has been an easy lesson for us to learn. We've just come out of, for many of us, a great period of worrying about contamination for the last couple of years. That's the illustration that's being dealt with, right? The idea of communicable sin that can be spread and passed. If I had some wretched skin disease and went and stood in the back to shake everybody's hand on the way out, it would be surprising how many of you would find out that we have doors up front. I I don't want to shake his hand. No, thanks. I might get it. I might get whatever gross he has on his hand. It might come to me. That's the type of sin that's being dealt with, and Jesus resolves that. Verses 5 through 10 deal with a second type of sin. Sins of transgression, 
sins done against somebody, a sin in which you probably perhaps did it on purpose, but where you wronged another person, you know you wronged another person, you've done harm to them. These are the ones described here as by breaking faith with the Lord because you've broken faith with a person of His people. And the interesting thing is, is God deals with those too. It's, a, again, pointing us forward to the ministry of Jesus that the Lord Himself, He, he resolves those contaminating sins, the defiling ones, but He also resolves, or restores and resolves these transgressions, the sins committed against one another. In fact, lays out really a very helpful church kind of plan to follow. What do you do when there's a sin committed against somebody else? Well, verse 7, that person should confess. The sin that they've committed, they should confess that. If there's evil been done by one to another, and again, we're not talking about, you know, pure accident here that nobody's at fault. We're not talking about that. We're talking about sin committed against somebody. He shall confess and make restitution plus 20%. So that if I do something wrong against one of my brothers that costs them money, costs them time away from work, costs them whatever else, it's appropriate for me to own that and say, you know what, I'm sorry, I did that. That was my fault. I was wrong. I should not have sinned against you that way. And you know what is part of my, the proof of my repentance? I'm going to pay back what I took from you. I'm going to pay back what it cost you. And in fact, because uh, as you know, if you've ever had a, an accident with your insurance company, they pay you what your car is worth, but your car is never worth what your car is worth. So you add 20% on top. And what a healthy, kind of wise practice this is. It keeps us from our current American litigious culture where you have these insane lawsuits Right? We're paying back bajillions of dollars for hurt feelings and things like that. It keeps us into a realm of dealing with absolutes, and it costs you $1,000. Well, I'm going to pay you back 1000 plus 20%. Because what's being highlighted here in their law code, what's being highlighted in the way their nation was designed to function was that God is not just in the business of reconciling God and man. He's in the business of reconciling man and man. We get to see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul refers to our ministry as the ministry of reconciliation, of uniting men and women, boys and girls together. And I will take a brief aside here, just in light of uh, the bit of the service we've just had. Praise God, what a sweet mercy. We've added another, what, 20 people to the church? Again, what a sweet mercy he's adding to our number almost weekly. Again, it's increasingly becoming difficult to keep track of all of the names. It's increasingly difficult to keep track of all of the children. They move so quickly, it's hard to recognize faces. They're everywhere and all over the place, and how wonderful that is. As Tom and I often talk about when our prayer times on Fridays, what this means is simply there's more people to step on our toes. And as I've joked before, some of you have really big feet. It's very easy for us to step on toes. 
It's also very difficult for us sometimes to find our place in the church, to find our niche, to find out what our job is. And I do think it's interesting that part of what's taking place is that the Lord has designed for you and for me, our, our job in creation is to be getting the people of God to be united, to be, to be reconciled. Now, in some cases, that first level of reconciliation is just getting to know a person. Right? There's faces in here I don't, I don't recognize. My face might be one you don't recognize. It, getting to know someone is that first step, but then even further than that is beginning to cultivate intimacy. But even beyond that, that's the easy part, is when feelings are hurt, when wrong has been done, when sin has been committed against another to go and by the power of the Holy Spirit and the redeeming work of Christ Jesus to be reunited. On a more even kind of pointed example, I know a, the bigger a church gets, the easier it is to have this kind of private bitterness that you just store away and you let fester in your heart toward your brothers and sisters in the church. Rather than getting it out, rather than forgiving, rather than moving on to let that private bitterness continue to define how you see that person. You know, they did such and such to me five and a half years ago, even though they don't remember it. And I can't let it go. Friends, our task is through Christ and His redemption, through the forgiveness that is found in Christ, to be ministers of reconciliation, uniting each other to each other, building connections and closeness. When we get to the third section, whoo, the doozy, right? The difficult passages, chapter, or in, uh, chapter 5, verses 11 through the end of the chapter, lays out what, for some of us, is one of the more bizarre parts of Scripture. It's a situation in which a man doubts his wife's faithfulness. Honestly, at this point, it doesn't entirely matter yet whether she's been unfaithful or not, but he doubts her faithfulness, and uh, the way they say it is a spirit of jealousy comes upon him. That's not inherently evil jealousy, the way they mean it. It's a, a spirit of claiming for fidelity, of, of longing for fidelity, and he can't let it go, and he has that niggling doubt in the back of his mind now. There's one part of it, and we read this and think, my goodness, this is incredibly harsh. I don't exactly know what her thigh withering means, but that's awful. But this is really harsh. You forget that actually in Leviticus, uh, for both men and women, the consequences of adultery was death. That's actually part of why the man has that niggling doubt in the back of his mind is because had she been unfaithful, they would have killed her. And so he's wondering, for him, this is in some sense kind of a, a life and death conversation. For her, it's actively a life and death conversation. And that's kind of one of those doubts that doesn't go away easily. Should she even be alive at all? Or should we have killed her for unfaithfulness? Well, <clears throat> Jesus, I mean, the Scriptures here explain quite clearly this is a situation where she hasn't been caught in the act. There's no proof. The man just has doubts. 
And so he brings his wife to the priest. <clears throat> they bring an offering together. And the Lord does an amazing thing. It's a trial through drinking. She is given holy water that has mixed in it some of the dust of the temple of God's house. She has mixed in it uh, part of the offering and the marks of the curse of her vow. And they do an elaborate vow ceremony. See, this is not actually conceptually that different than the vows that we did here. We just had 20 people take vows to the Lord to swear to God to obey him in those five ways. This is, in essence, the same thing. She's swearing to God her obedience to whatever he does. But it's letting the Lord prove whether or not she's guilty or whether or not she's innocent. And if she drinks the waters of bitterness, the waters of the curse, and if she is innocent, guess what happens? Nothing. In fact, actually, the Lord opens her womb and she's given the ability to have children. If, however, she's been unfaithful and she's been hiding it, if she hasn't confessed, if she hasn't tried to make restoration through the channels that she could have, instead what the Lord does is, verse 27 describes it as making her womb swell and her thigh shall fall away. Thigh here is probably a euphemism um, for kind of her reproductive organs not really working well. A lot of times in the Old Testament, it doesn't refer to um, your reproductive organs. It would refer to thighs or feet. You know, the angels cover their feet. Feet, kind of a euphemism for uh, their anatomy. And what it's meaning here is, realistically, if she is guilty, the Lord is going to kind of wither her insides. He'll make her barren. But if she's innocent, he'll give her children And so the Lord himself will be responsible for proving her innocence or her guilt. Now, the interesting thing is the water itself has kind of no value. It's just drinking a little bit of dirty water. And it's not going to hurt her. It's not going to help her. It's just a water. But it's water that's been set aside to God so that God would be the one who shows sin. In fact, actually, that's probably the biggest takeaway from this section, as difficult as it is, is that the Lord is the one who reveals sin. You see, that's the interesting thing, kind of, it's building in the chapter. Your first section, it's uh, highlighting these sins of defilement, things that I've done that may contaminate me and then help me to contaminate others. Your next section are sins that I've done where I've wronged my brother or I've wronged my sister. But realistically, the loophole that we all want to immediately jump through is that only counts if I get caught, <laughs> right? It's only a sin of defilement if someone knows I did it. It's only a sin against somebody else if I get caught doing it. If I never get caught doing it, well, it doesn't count, right? 
One of my friends has a famous story. It's a great story. He and his buddies were uh, young and being very, very big idiots. Uh, that was as foolish as you could possibly do. They were playing with a bunch of gasoline uh, and fire, which is a terrible combination. They did it, and uh, somehow the fire got to the gas can, and they were very worried and very afraid. So they grabbed the gas can, they threw it. It happened to land in the creek. Gas floats on top of water, and it proceeded to light the next three quarters of a mile of the creek on fire on both sides. At which point, somebody then called the fire department. The fire department came out, and the boys helped them put out the fire and thought, how fun. And the firemen were like, I wonder who did this. And the boys were like, I wonder too. (laughs) No consequences, right? They never got caught until now that I tell their story. (laughs) Sometimes we think that way about God, don't we? Well, it's only a sin if I get caught. It's only a sin if somebody knows about it. It's only a sin if mom finds out. Well, what's being highlighted here is that, well, friends, no sin is safe because God is in the business of revealing sins. We find this out in the New Testament and other places that deeds done in darkness will be shown in the light. That you don't get the privilege of kind of having those little secret sins that you keep close that no one knows about. Because the reality of the matter is that lots of people know about it, just not people that you currently see. This is one of those thoughts that I'd love to think about and actually helps with temptation immensely. Think about how many angels have watched you sin. We don't know them. They might be here. We have no idea. They're not physical the way that we are. They might be in this room right now. I have no idea. I have no idea. Think about how many of them might have watched me sin much less the Lord himself. You see, again, this idea that the Lord is the one who's in charge of revealing sin. Now, this is an interesting one because so many of us, uh, we think it's somehow become our mission when somebody does some kind of minor mistake. We think that it's like our job description to bring about the, the revealing and punishment of every minor mistake. Right? We have that critical spirit sometimes. We're like, can you believe they did that? And they're going to get away with it? Never! And then uh, they have to raise a ruckus or things like that. Instead, interestingly, of trusting that the Lord is the one who's in charge of his church, instead of trusting that the Lord is the one who's in charge of reconciling sin, and trust, instead of trusting that the Lord is the one who indeed is the one who cares for families, The interesting thing, I think, is how this entire activity is resolved in chapter 5. The spirit of jealousy is possessed a husband. He brings his wife to the priest. The priest has her drink the water of bitterness. She swears a curse to the Lord. And then he sends them home to go be married and stop worrying about it. How do you determine whether or not it's worked? Whether or not they get kids. I'm fairly certain there has to be an activity between those two things. Go be married. Go. Stop being consumed with doubt. Stop being consumed with the worry. Trust the Lord. He's going to take care of you. Trust the Lord. He's going to take care of you. You see, really interestingly, it's such an intriguing thing. This test for adultery at the end is really just a cure for anxiety. Just trust God. He's going to take care of it. Be at peace. He's going to protect you. 
Even if the person that you love the most has stabbed you in the back, the Lord will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He's never going to leave you alone. Even if they do, he will not. For he cannot. You see, all of these things are are pointing us forward to the promises of Christ. That Jesus would be the one who cleanses from defiling sin. That Jesus would be the one who reconciles God and man and man and man. That Jesus would ultimately be the one who at the end of time is the judge of all things. And in him, if you're in Christ, you will be judged and found innocent. Not because you haven't done them, because you know you have but because he already took your guilty plea for you. Why does that matter? What does that do? Well, interestingly, the next section, I think, is kind of the consequence of it. Numbers chapter 6. We have the Nazarite vow, which many of you would remember from Samson and other places. This was the vow for a person who is set apart fully and totally unto the service of God. And they didn't have access to the fruit of the vine. You couldn't have raisins or wine or, or grapes or anything. You, you didn't cut your hair. You didn't touch dead bodies. And the reason being is because God owned every part of you. And as a result, the totality of your life was devoted to him. And I do think it's interesting that the Nazarite vow is presented kind of just after three cases of God resolving sin. God deals with defiling sin. God deals with transgressive sin. God deals with secret sin. And oh yeah, what's the consequence? Well, the way that God resolves it, you can be fully devoted unto him. In fact, actually, that might be a good application for us to think about even as we go to the table here in just a moment. You see, when the Lord sits down to have fellowship with his people, it's not because we don't sin. He knows them. It's because we are forgiven in Christ. Our only hope is in Christ. But even in this table, he gives us Christ. He gives us his spirit so that we may be more fully committed to obedience to living in his kingdom, to living according to his moral law. Again, not because we're any better of Christians when we do, but because we love him and we want to make him happy. This is one of the great benefits of having holidays like the one that's celebrated today. When we have Mother's Day or Father's Day or Grandparents' Day or whatever day, it gives us an opportunity to kind of set aside and think, I'm not doing these things for mom or dad or grandparents or whoever else because I have to. I'm doing them because I love them. And I want to help them. And I want to make them happy and I want to please them because I love them with a whole heart. Our obedience unto the Lord is no different. He has been so good to us and we love him. Maybe, in light of that, we might serve him with greater joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your supper. Would you please equip us now even to serve you with a whole heart for Christ's sake.